Welcome to the Indian Science Show. I'm Turtle. This is a podcast where we bring indigenous worldviews and western worldviews into conversations about science in Indian country and also across the planet. But we always want to be clear that we don't have all the answers, but we're curious. So we definitely have a lot of questions. Before we get started on this episode, though, I want to give a quick shout out to a cool radio show slash podcast that we found and also read a few comments that we got about our show. As Annie and I were doing research for the Indian Science Show, we came across Indians on the Airwaves. It's a radio documentary series out of Canada, and I really got to hand it to the natives up north of the medicine line. I've been hearing about all sorts of really cool projects, and I'm really excited to see what happens in the future and also just to learn from example. But anyways, after listening to a few episodes of Indians on the Airwaves, I was hooked and really wanted to support them somehow. So we reached out and asked if we could give them a shout out on our show, and we got the thumbs up, and we're happy to support them. This radio documentary series was produced by Janet Rogers, with support from CFUV 101.9 FM, and also the Community Radio Fund of Canada Radiometries grant program. This series was developed to address a need to share Native voices and to spread the word that the past, present, and future of Native radio is really important. And Annie and I also felt that it's important. But unfortunately, they're no longer making new episodes. But I still encourage you to check it out. There's a lot of great content on the episodes they do have. And we found them on Stitcher, but they're also on SoundCloud, and their website is ndnsonthearwaves.wordpress.com. That's indensontheairwaves.wordpress.com. And they also have a Facebook page, so give them a like if you dig their show. It's very informative and sheds more light on the need for indigenous voices across the planet. So I know I'm down with it. With that in mind, I also want to read a few of the comments and reviews that we got from people across the world. This first one, let's see, this first one is from a listener out of Australia. That's cool. They said, hi, I just wanted to message in to say I found the podcast via Google podcast app. I'm Maori from New Zealand and really enjoying the show. My favorite podcast so far was with Judy Gobert and had heard of her work in New Zealand and particularly her activism about the collection of indigenous DNA as it was widely discussed in New Zealand. I applaud the objective of your show to encourage youth, particularly around the world, especially indigenous youth, to enter sciences and my hope in time more of our people more of our peoples worldwide will enter these professions and be able to bring our indigenous views into these areas. Currently, I'm on my way to the office listening to being indigenous in the modern world. Fascinating for me. I feel sometimes it's like living in two worlds slash communities, particularly as I live in Australia. Keep up the awesome podcast and look forward to more content and talking points. Kakite ano, Hugo. Well, thanks, Hugo. I told my mom about this, and she re- it really made her day, so I appreciate that. This next one was posted on our WordPress page for the episode we did on being indigenous in the modern world. It's short and sweet and says, quote, thank you for this. 
end quote. Well, if you're out there and you're listening and you remember saying that, thank you for thanking us. We definitely appreciate the feedback and because it, it really lets us know what kind of content people want to hear. So we, we really couldn't stress more how important comments and reviews and stuff are. And this last one here came from Anna, who it seems shared our show and then got a reply from the person she shared it with, which is pretty cool because that's the best compliment, in my opinion, to show our show to someone else. So thanks for doing that, Anna. This one reads, Anna. Or wait, there's an exclamation mark. Anna, thank you for sharing. I enjoyed this breath of fresh air perspective from exceptionally brilliant young people. Embrace the concepts of integration, honor, and balance. Thought of our planning, healing, and moving beyond trauma. Iris. Thank you, Iris. I don't know if I'd call us brilliant, but... I like to think that someday, if I work at it enough, I'll become wise, maybe. We appreciate the compliment, though, because we totally do believe in things like balance, and both of us are always doing our best to move past our own trauma. So any way we can share a good message and help our community is something we're happy to do. Thanks, anyone, for listening and for all those reviews and comments. On today's episode, our conversation surrounds a single word, science. I mean, what is science anyway? Where did it come from? How has it affected indigenous communities? These are just a few of the questions we explore today, and there's a whole lot more. I really loved having this conversation with Annie, and we both had fun putting this one together. And we're also always excited to get feedback from anyone out there listening, so feel free to leave comments or reviews, or if you have any questions you'd like us to explore, go ahead and drop us an email, and we'll be sure to put that in one of our episodes. We're excited to keep it going, and definitely appreciate all the support. Enjoy the show. Today, Annie and I want to explore this word science, and... We've been talking a lot about it, and we basically realized that there's a lot of disagreement among even scientists yeah, we've about done, what science means. We've done this episode, what, for the third day in a row right now? Yeah, we're really <laughs> struggling. I mean, we're sitting here in western Montana, and the sun is just beating down, and it's so hot. Yeah, our office so is hot. hot right now. So we're a little uncomfortable. We got the AC going, so our apologies for any extra background <laughs> noise, but we were just not... Yeah. Gonna put up with the heat, so. We need it. But anyways, back to the topic of science and just trying to understand it a little better for ourselves, but also to, to define it and clarify kind of this controversial word, because it really is pretty controversial, and they've basically been arguing about it since Galileo's time. For today, though, we just want to start off with a few definitions of what Western science is or could be. And then briefly touch on native science. Uh, I feel like we've t talked about that quite a bit already. So we'll touch on that. But I think something we really want to hit on today is what science means to native communities and how research is played out yeah. in native communities. So to get things going, I just want to read off this really basic definition from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. It defines science as the state of knowing. And that's, that's pretty dang simple. 
And that knowledge, and then, oh, it goes on to define knowledge as distinguished from ignorance or misunderstanding. And there's a few more definitions on here, but I just wanted to read that really basic one to point out that science is not exclusive to Western culture or Europeans. Mm -hmm. They didn't invent science. Humans invented science. It's a part of our nature. Mm -hmm. And Western science is just one form of science. Well, I think we definitely have had science for a long time because oh yeah, that's how we kind of evolved, right? Mm -hmm. With testing out different foods, eating red meat, which increased our brain size. I think that people just think of science as like this really like biologists and ecologists and mm, physics. And that, yeah. And like these really, really hard, like mathematicians, like these really, really smart people. Hmm. And I think that there definitely are many forms of science and going into grad school and attending my first social science class. I did take like a poli sci class in my undergrad just for my mom. Poli sci. Is that like multiple sciences or is that psychology? Political science. Oh, <laughs> I was way off. <laughs> okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And I took it for my mom because uh, she's a poli sci person. So it wasn't, I, it wasn't for me. I just mm. didn't, I just didn't like it. And uh, so when I took that SU class, one of the first things that they said to me was, that natural scientists don't believe that social scientists are actual science. Hmm. Like they're not scientists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm totally guilty of that. <laughs> I I remember actually even just last year even during the spring when I was working yeah. with Ethnotech, we were out there talking and Dave was talking about anthropology and social science and stuff and I had to chime in and say, no, social science isn't a science. They should just stop calling it science. It's important, but it's not science. <laughs> Such a negative, shitty attitude. Right. When the reality is, is it totally is. It's just a different kind. It right? is. And so I was going over this book again because I had a quote, an original quote. Mm -hmm. But after I read like a couple more pages, <laughs> I found this really interesting one and I want to read it to you. So the book is Evolution, Creationism, and Other Modern Myths and it's by Vine Deloria. Mm, highly recommended. <laughs> yeah, I've never read this book, but I've been like skimming it since we decided to talk about kind of what science is. And oh man, okay, let me, let me, let me find it real quick. Um, so it says... <laughs> Um, in many other fields claiming to be scientific, particularly those involving human or animal behavior, almost any hypothesis takes on the mantle of serious inquiry, even when it's not. There are too few good mm. measuring devices and too many factors discarded to make our conclusions meaningful. We currently accept the, the definition that if one uses a scientific method, that is science. Everything else is speculation or that mushy part of our lives, art, religion, and humanities. Hmm. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Man, I love Vine Deloria's writing so much. So do I. I haven't <clears throat> read everything, but I, I, I'm, I'm going to read this book now. Yeah, that's my favorite book of his. I think in order, I, I'd say it's this book and then The World We Used to Live In and then God is Red. Mm-hmm. God is Red is like his classic one that <laughs> right. everybody knows about. And yeah, if you haven't read Vine Deloria's writing, I definitely recommend it. He's one of the most 
well-written, articulate authors I've ever read. And as a native scientist, he's one of the uh, few native authors that really got well-known. Mm-hmm. And he really pushed a lot of boundaries and challenged like Western paradigms. And the dude was pretty badass. And I definitely miss him. Yeah. And I think it's just interesting because really the people who study like human and animal behavior are like psychologists. And, 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 you know, and my sister is a psychologist and my mom is in social, social fields. She does healthcare and, she doesn't consider herself like herself a scientist, but she she deals with with human behavior, and I definitely think social science is a science. Yeah, I do now. Yeah, <laughs> after like going through like all that thing and all the classes, and it's definitely changed how I look at social science and really how how much goes into understanding one definition in social science because you have to. It was a hard class. I was not a fan. And I think that when you were talking about the definition of science and how it was pretty simple, and when he says that we currently accept the definition that if one uses the scientific method, that is science. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that it's so formulaic, the method. Yeah. And just to kind of refresh people's memory about what the scientific method is, it's a basically just principles and procedures for systematic pursuit of knowledge and there are certain aspects of it but generally speaking it starts with an observation of some kind Mm -hmm. and then you form hypothesis or a question to try and answer something about that observation and then you formulate a test or a research project and then that reinforms whatever results you get from that reinforms your hypothesis. And it's supposed to be a cycling process. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people look at it like a linear thing. Like there's a beginning point and an end point, And at the end point, you get a theory or some facts. But that's rarely how science works out, especially big scientific changes. So that reminds me of something I read in this book, Native science from Gregory Caete. And by the way, our conversation, even when we're not on the air, we we talk a lot about books and all sorts of different things when we have conversations. But yeah, it's all anyways, we do is, is read. <laughs> yeah, I know. The life of a grad student, reading and reading and writing. In this book, Native Science, though, it's a little bit outdated, but it's a, a pretty good book. I really like it. In here, he quotes this guy, Herbert Reed. And he said back in 1945, he said that science is the explanation and art is the expression of the same reality. Hmm. And I really love that. And for me, that has a lot of implications for what native science is. Yeah. Because we don't separate art and science and spirituality. They're all a part of this constantly evolving, Mm -hmm. constantly adapting philosophy and worldview. And that's a huge part of our strength mm-hmm. as indigenous people. So I know that we have talked about this a little bit, but do you think that is why people were so accepting of Darwin's theory of evolution? Um, well, like, or like the one, the theory, how do you say this? People tended to believe it people tended to believe this theory because of the evidence that he put forward. It was kind of really one of the largest steps towards people believing in science over 
this idea of religion and them being separate. Hmm. That's a really good point. And it's a hard question to answer because it, I mean, you're aware of this, but at the time he faced a lot of resistance. And at that time in European, the evolution of European science, there was still a huge argument between mm-hmm. religion and science and they definitely weren't separated. So the Darwinian revolution was definitely a scientific revolution and it didn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. It, when did he publish the first edition? Was it in the 60s or the 1870s? Oh I can't gosh, remember. I don't know. But it took him like 12 or 13 years before mm-hmm. he finally got through all of his revisions and published the final edition. And it was there was a lot of changes to it. And mm-hmm. he was responding to all his critics and people pointing holes, pointing out holes. And that's the process of science. It's not yeah. like someone comes up with a theory and it's automatically flawless. Exactly. And that all theories in science are flawless. And, mm-hmm. But the reality is, is they're all full of holes. Yeah. And science isn't about being absolutely certain about things. It's about just being a little bit less wrong than you were last time. So that way, eventually, you just minimize how wrong you are. But any good scientist that I've ever met pretty much knows that it's always changing. And the knowledge base is always changing. And our understanding of the universe and a reality is always changing. And from my perspective, that's something that native science is really good at is that adaptability, that fluid, the fluidity of it allows for shifts to occur in a much more natural way instead of the institutionalized. Oh, man, it's it's really hard to kind of paint this kind of picture because change occurs within Western science, too. Mm-hmm. And there's paradigm shifts. But. Because it's so rigid and it's so kind of regimented and separated in all these different areas, the change takes a lot longer than it does in indigenous communities. Yeah, but I think you're starting to see that change now in social science when it Mm. comes to indigenous communities. Maybe not so much in natural science, but definitely in social science, they are attempting to heal or mend these poor research techniques and unethical techniques that were done. And it's been really, really cool learning about them and kind of seeing what people are attempting to do and and really the inclusion of indigenous communities from the start of projects. And I think that's the coolest thing I have seen while researching for our school projects. Mm. Yeah, me too. And the uh, something that I've been hearing over and over from the people I meet with is just how glad they are that I'm starting with cultural values first. And I think that's probably one of the main difference be- differences between Western science and indigenous science is that indigenous science, every step of the way, it's guided by cultural values. Mm-hmm. Whereas Western science, it almost does the opposite where it's trying to exclude these because it views them as bias and when it is included, it's usually an afterthought. It's not really the thing that's guiding the use of all the tools and what information and how it's interpreted and all that stuff. So that's kind of, um, that's the way I see the, the major differences and also the benefits of both because I feel like seeing the world in 
two totally different ways is an important way to learn. And mm -hmm. I know you've talked about this before about how if we really want to do a good job doing research in native communities, we have to include multiple worldviews. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that it is an extremely important thing and really having everyone at the table. And if you know my mother, you know, that is exactly what she says. A hundred percent of the time she speaks in any kind of group setting. And that's why I really, she instilled in me this idea of making sure that no matter what background you have, you have a right to be at that table. Hmm. And I feel while I had her, it's really hard for other, other groups to kind of see that inclusion is the only way to make any project last. Hmm. And it's yeah. that lasting effect that we all want in communities and, and really moving past these traumas that are faced in indigenous communities, not only from research, but reservations, boarding schools, colonization, uh, poor education systems, you name it, alcoholism, diabetes, drug abuse, sexual assaults, missing, murdered indigenous women. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And you hear all of these positive changes that are going on right now. And it's the time to really step forward and have everyone be at the table. Hmm. I, I really agree. And that's going to take a lot of courage, I think, to be able to come together like that and create a space together that's non-judgmental, mm -hmm. but also willing to challenge paradigms and current ways of thinking for the betterment of everybody. Because we won't be able to figure that out until we come together. Mm -hmm. And that's... um. You brought up how like boarding schools and colonialism have had an effect in our communities and science and colonialism go hand in hand. Yeah. And even the boarding schools, the scientists of the day looked at that as the best method for solving the problem that they were trying mm -hmm. to solve, which was Indian, the Indian problem. Yeah. And as messed up as that is, that was high science at the time. Just like racism and race science was considered cutting edge mm -hmm. at the turn of the 20th century. I mean, like that's why Hitler rose so far oh, yeah. as he did. Yeah. Eugenics came yeah. directly out of anthropology. And that was one of the main sciences that got developed just a little over a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's like such a short time. A hundred years. It really yeah. isn't that long ago that's, when you think I mean, about my it. My great grandma was around yeah. at that time. And it's so funny because we as indigenous people will think that far back. We will go back as far as seven generations. I know my mom does. My mom goes back seven generations. And that's 200 years. That's And even that's yeah. not that long. It's not that in long. In the big scheme of things. And I think it's just interesting to see how far science has changed and the new technological advances that we have now. And I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing for indigenous communities because – you're losing all of this time and with time comes, you need money and you need to do this. You mm. need to work and, and you're losing all of this knowledge. And I know that you've said this the other day was 
we're kind of like a pivotal generation of acquiring knowledge. And I haven't really stopped thinking about that since you said it. And it's really true because there's only a few people that know today what it was like before really things changed drastically. Mm-hmm. They were still living old traditional ways, no cars, you know, we have l- certain luxuries that a hundred years ago you didn't have. And we just came on our 120th powwow this year for, for this, for the Salish people. And I mean, that seems like a long time, right? But, mm-hmm. but I don't know. It's, it's weird to think about time and, this all brought me to this fact of the society of Catholic scientists that I had discovered. And just thinking about, I am a Catholic. I, I was baptized Catholic. My mom is Catholic. I think I am too. My great grandma yeah. wanted us baptized. I'm a godparent. So I, my, my nephew who was seven, I was there for his baptism and, and I've always kind of struggled with this idea of science and religion mm-hmm. and really, or not even like religion, but like in this religion as like your, your cultural context or your spirituality, like really like religion as whatever you consider your religion to be. So it's not just Catholic. Yeah. And so I had asked you what you had thought about what the Society of Catholic Scientists was. And it just made me laugh because it was completely different than what yeah. the actual like mission statement of what what the scientists want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd, I've been doing a lot of research into anthropology and archaeology and especially biological or physical anthropology. So I had that stuck in my head when you were saying mm-hmm. that. And I was thinking <laughs> of this thing in the United States where there's very, um, very, I guess, just they're just really staunch believers mm-hmm. of the biblical creation stories, yeah. the five thousand year old history of the earth, and the, just what all of this means. All these new discoveries we've been making over the last hundred years. They take all the, these discoveries and science and rearrange it a little bit to support their version of creation and how they see it. So, but in a lot of ways, it takes it. They they take things a little bit out mm-hmm. of context. And yeah. explain things and leave details and facts out that are essential aspects of some of these theories. So really, they're they're using pseudoscience to support their beliefs. Mm-hmm. And I have no problem with people and their beliefs as long as they're not trying to impose those beliefs on me or my family or anyone else that doesn't want to believe that way. And as long as they're not using it to take humanity away from people as long as it fits those two general criteria most of the time i'm going to be cool with it yeah so these scientists aren't like that at all yeah (laughs) yeah this Um, is actually pretty cool what you're yeah so i'm just on their website right now catholic catholic scientist.org and um so this is their mission statement and so it's society of Catholic scientists exists for these following purposes. And there's four of them. So the first one is uh, to foster fellowship among Catholic scientists. Two is to witness the harmony between the vocation of scientists and the life of faith. The third one is to be a forum for reflection upon and discussion of questions concerning the relation of science and the Catholic faith. And the fourth one, which I think I like the most 
is to act as a resource for Catholic educators, pastors, and lay people, and for journalists and members of the general public who have questions about the significance of science, the scientific theories and discoveries and about the relation of science and faith. Hmm. See, to me, that that seems like a pretty noble cause. Yeah. I mean... I, I, I don't think I could necessarily disagree with any of that, mm-hmm. even as a scientist, but I'm biased because I'm... I mean, an indigenous scientist, and I've never separated spirituality out of it. Yeah. that's. I mean, my mom taught me not to do that. So. I think that my mom had taught me to be so individual that I had created my own religion. Yeah. Just, just, just for me, like... The religion I've, of Annie. The religion of Annie. And yeah. I've done research, and I've looked into other religions. Um, Morgan Freeman has this mini-series called The, uh, the Theory of God, The Theory... Um, oh, I should think of what it's called. Um, I'm going to look, but I'll, I'll continue to talk. And really, yeah, it really is just like kind of, um, finding the little pieces of religion that really make sense to you and that like really kind of bring you forward. And so right now I hadn't really been, been spiritually in my culture at all. And so I'm now learning that and like, that's kind of taken over like a big part of, of who I identify with, I guess. And Mm -hmm. when I was younger, it was, it was being Catholic and first communion and all that stuff. And, and so it's really kind of picking the little parts of every religion. I think it's so cool to learn religion because it's religion is universal. It's just not one singular religion. Yeah. How we practice it. Yeah. Is, can be different but that it's almost like the, uh, like science it's there's this certain aspect of being human that we can't separate ourselves from mm-hmm. and being inspired or drawn to the unknown to understand it and to feel it and to experience it in some way that's an, an essential human thing mm-hmm. and we have all developed it i'd say buddhism is an expression of that taoism mm-hmm. shinto what is that? Zoroastrianism. That is, <laughs> I still don't know how to pronounce that, but it's this really ancient one from the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And all the way to like paganism from Europe. And I think they call it animism is how they label us because we see everything as alive, mm-hmm. that everything is a spirit. And so Westerners call it animism. But all these come together. And I really love what you said that you kind of you choose what fits mm-hmm. within your worldview and what works best for you to create a better life for yourself. And for me, that's what it should be about is bettering ourselves and our communities and trying to lead a a good life. Mm -hmm. I think like, that's what every religion wants is you just to be happy and like be the best you. I don't think there's any religion that wants you to not be the best you. And, Hmm. and really I struggle with religion and I've kind of been a really hard scientist and, it's been interesting, and I think it's just all about getting older and mm-hmm. all of the experiences <laughs> yeah. that you face throughout your oh. life. And I'm about to be 28, so I feel like I'm reflecting on life more. Ooh, you're getting there. <laughs> I'm getting there, almost to 30. And oh, the so the TV series is called "The Story of God" with Morgan Freeman, and it's oh, on okay. YouTube. I highly I really want to watch that. Yeah, it's it's really good, and he just goes through different religions and he learns about them. Hmm. And it's just it's just eye opening and. And mm. they talk about Catholic scientists in one of these episodes. 
I could totally listen to Morgan Freeman talk about religion right. all day long. <laughs> you could even talk about anything. <laughs> yeah. I'd be perfectly happy. I would love to see a, a show where him and David Attenborough oh, narrate it together like a conversation. Yeah. That'd be cool. David Attenborough, if you're listening, I want to interview you. Yeah. Yeah. Come on our 100%. show. Him and Morgan Freeman. <laughs> Just to hear them speak. Right. I know everyone... It's really interesting because I love David Attenborough. Yeah, me too. And everyone's like, well, he's not a, he's not a scientist because he just narrates the shows. But he has multiple science degrees. In, yeah. In its... And in a lot of ways, he's almost the most important part of science is mm-hmm. communicating it to the people. <laughs> and he does it in a way that's just so reflecting and it's so nice. You I just know. Listen. And it's like it's calming. His voice <laughs> is calming and relaxing to me. Yeah. There was like a solid year. Where I fell asleep to life every single night. <laughs> Not just like I didn't miss a night. It was every single night. I think yeah. I watched the life series on. But it's to on be Netflix. honest, I think Morgan Freeman, I think he's got David Attenborough <laughs> beat. I think he really does. Morgan Freeman just has that perfect mixture of calmness and that. Uh, I really struggle <laughs> to describe it. But, yeah, I think I do like his voice just a little bit better than David Attenborough. But I got nothing against David. (laughs) He's cool, too. That's one of the things that I love about him. About Well, at least about David Attenborough, really, is like conservation. And I think I'm I'm probably biased on that that debate, Morgan Freeman or David Attenborough, because Mm -hmm. I'm going to pick the conservation biologist. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that does kind of give him a little bit of a... Yeah, he gets a little bit of a leeway. Because, like, everyone asked, if you could have dinner with one person who would it be and i think 90 percent of the time it's david Attenborough, yeah. like alive or dead i i would love to have dinner with him hmm. i haven't thought about that question in a while who would who would i have dinner with if yeah. it could be anybody any literally anybody yeah from any point in history right? yeah hmm that's a really tough one i know in the past it would have been maynard james keenan from tool <laughs> but i don't think that i would if it, I don't think I would choose him anymore. I would definitely like to kick it with him, but if I were to choose anyone from any point in history, you know what? I might choose someone from way back before written history. Yes. I love that. Like, I would love to go back like 13,000 years ago. Yeah. Like 14,000 years ago. Yeah. One of my ancestors from 13,000 yeah. years ago. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. who I'd like to have dinner <laughs> with. And ha- let uh, eat some of their food. Yeah. No technology. No lights except for fire. Walking with mastodons. When we met, like woolly mammoths. <laughs> Let's go for a <laughs> mastodon walk. <laughs> or like, what is it? Uh, giant sloths. Like, imagine oh, yeah. the the, the so megafauna crazy. you can see back then. Uh, uh. It's hard to imagine just because we've never experienced it. Yeah. But it really blows my mind thinking about saber-toothed tigers. and Right. Those huge birds. What do they call them? The terror birds? Oh, yeah. Terror that birds. That here in the Americas. Yep. Those things are gnarly, like super predator things. (laughs) I was literally listening to a little Facebook video on terror birds either last night or this morning. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Uh, It was just like a quick little like minute talking about how they used to use their their skulls are fused. So they used to use their whole heads as just like beaking things to death. Like Hmm. it was intense. Man. (laughs) And like I think that just shows you. I don't know how cool science is. 
Yeah. And like really like learning about it. And while well, they're never going to come back, ho- hopefully, because Jurassic World has proven. I know. The, not a good idea. That's crazy. Thinking <laughs> that they may actually do something like that. Mm-hmm. And that gets me thinking that I totally agree that science is awesome. Mm-hmm. Modern or Western science, whatever you want to call it. I love it because it has that unique ability to describe the distant past with really fine detail. Mm -hmm. Whereas indigenous science can do the same thing, but it delivers much bigger picture details, much bigger concepts that are far less generalizable. They're like very specific to place, very specific to time and Mm -hmm. culture. And I feel like the stories like in our oral tradition teach us a lot more about what was going on in the world, like the wider context. Whereas Western science, we tend to focus in on like, what are the isotopes of that time? And it'll tell us about the atmospheric composition. And we're like, yeah, that's cool information. (laughs) It's it's neat to understand that. But I I guess uh, (laughs) kind of talking about biases, I'm an ecologist, so I'm Mm -hmm. almost always looking at the big picture. I'm interested in huge patterns and stuff like that, whereas biology is – that's kind of why I got out of biology is it's far – it's more organismal, focusing mm-hmm. on how organisms work. Um, that reminds me though about kind of where science came from and how the, the dominant form of science, Western science, has been in this fight with itself yeah. for almost a thousand years to where they've been trying to split science from sp- spirituality. Mm-hmm. And although I see that as being – like there's been a lot of benefits to that. Yet at the same time, that, in my opinion, is why bad science exists, why science out of control exists, like why genetic patenting and things like Monsanto and all of these other things that are causing so much destruction, that's where that comes from, is because there's no cultural values to guide it. Mm -hmm. So, okay, with that, I want to ask you something. Yeah. So in my social science class, they talked a lot about the politics of a person. So... Mm. By politics, they mean values, beliefs. Do you think that your own political biases can be separated from any decision you decide to make? No. We had we had three-hour discussions about these, these, this, this exact question. I would say that's a hard no. Mm-hmm. But we have instruments that can exclude those biases. But even then, the results and the numbers you're getting from those measurements are still going to be filtered through your worldview. Right? Mm-hmm. So you're going to interpret those numbers for some kind of meaning or some kind of a pattern. Yeah. And that meaning and that pattern <laughs> is definitely going to be affected by, I mean, I would say political views are a part of the bigger worldview. Mm-hmm. But I mean, all that, your ethics, your politics, all this stuff is going to fold into how you interpret those numbers. Yeah. So I would say, no, it's not. There's no way for us to do that simply because of the that paradox of perception where you're always perceiving reality and there's no way to escape that. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say, no, there's no not really any foolproof way of excluding that from science. Or yeah. the practice of science. I think I definitely agree with you. I think it's hard to keep your own beliefs and your own ethics out of any decision. No matter mm-hmm. how hard you try. I think mm-hmm. that that's always going to always gonna be an issue. And I, I think that's why Darwin and all these early scientists were... While their 
theories and philosophies maybe not maybe they don't hold the same value as they do in today's world i still think they're a step out of the norm oh yeah especially for their time yeah to follow their own beliefs i Mm -hmm. think is is just really really cool and definitely should still be talked about because they started it a lot of them yeah i think that's an important point too that darwin he was basically fighting the entire scientific community um most people at the time believed in this thing called lamarckian or lamarckianism where they believed that the main difference between the two is that in lamarckianism you can acquire a characteristic. So like, for example, you get really big muscles. Mm-hmm. And when you have children, you pass that on to them. So they're more likely to be able to get big muscles and they're going to be just stronger as a result. Well, Darwin was saying, no, that's not true. You are born with the genes that you are born with and you express those. And some get turned on, some get turned off. Although he didn't call them genes. They didn't know. He didn't. That was one of the major holes in his theory. But what he's saying that these characteristics are not heritable. But Lamarckianism was saying that they are. Mm-hmm. And the major split happened in right at the turn of the 20th century when most scientists started saying, okay, well, maybe they're not her- heritable. And they slowly started to drop Lamarckianism. But that transition didn't even take full hold until the 50s even. Mm-hmm. So, But now with epigenetics, it's going backwards again. We're starting <laughs> to like, well, maybe we can pass down these yeah. things that we – like maybe our behaviors and our thought patterns and what we eat and all this, maybe that does affect our genes. Mm-hmm. And maybe we do pass those down. Well, I think in indigenous communities, we know that is true. And oh, yeah. I think that definitely we uh, have understood generational historic traumas. Mm-hmm. And, and another thing I think that is a positive side to, to, to being an indigenous community is really the knowledge that has been passed, the communal knowledge that has been passed down for generations and generations, not just individual. And I think really going on that is, is this idea of intellectual property rights. Hmm. Yeah. The, that difference between communal knowledge and Mm -hmm. individually owned. Mm -hmm. It's a big deal. It is. And I know I would like to have like a whole episode where we kind of delve deep into to intellectual property rights and mm-hmm. yeah me too there's a lot there's a lot of layers to that mm-hmm. it's a whole international law system and like how does that affect communities and indigenous people yeah because so, i, I know, agree yeah. there's a whole episode we we should definitely do on that yeah because that was one of the questions that uh my tribal council asked me when i presented my research idea to to them for approval was who owns the intellectual property rights since I go through S- Syracuse University. Is that just for, for SU? But of course, I assumed that it was just going to be given to the community because mm-hmm. we're doing yeah. research for the community. So why wouldn't we give them the knowledge? And and I think it's because Montecito and it's all these these genetically modified companies that have taken intellectual property rights of indigenous communities yeah. and unethically profited or used it and and didn't give credit and and so i think we're at a weird time because people are fighting back Mm -hmm. and no hardly anyone trusts science Mm -hmm. or government so and i understand yeah i mean i totally understand 
I don't blame people at all for it. And it's companies like that, Monsanto, going and mm-hmm. doing all this horrible stuff to these communities or government spinning things like fake news or putting out there that scientists don't agree about climate change <laughs> as if we're all supposed to agree on theories all the time, Yeah, which is not science at all. There's, there's always disagreement and exactly. it would not be science unless there was that disagreement. Mm-hmm. It would not, there would be no... Nobody pushing science forward and challenging these theories to see like, hey, wait a minute, is this BS or is it actually pretty legit? Right. And so that question is always supposed to be cyclical. Mm -hmm. But I think the public perception and then a lot of people in government, a lot of politicians' perception is that there's a beginning point and an end point. And the end point is facts. The end point is solid theories that are uh, indisputable. Right. But and that I think couldn't be farther from the truth. Yeah, it's funny because our research, our endpoint is just going to lead to more research. Uh, yeah, it just and, opens <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so well, it's gonna doors. open up so much more doors. It's kinda frustrating be, sometimes. Yeah, it's it's this continual process and it's the the secular scientific method that yeah. that you should just always do throughout your life. Mm. But I'm cool with it. I'm yeah. of course it gets frustrating at times, but it's worth it because it's so much more rewarding than actually achieving a goal and then having nowhere to go from there. Yeah. Oh, man, that's terrifying to me. That's why I love this program that we're in, and I think that you can talk about this a little bit better than I can, but but really what we're doing is is something unique in Mm -hmm. itself and kind of not really been 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 done in a at least in a institutional setting i guess yeah i know you've come across some really cool projects mm-hmm. as have i to where people are totally doing this kind of work the biocultural yeah. restoration but more often than not especially here in the united states the projects i come across they don't call it that no they don't they're they're just saying renewal or mm-hmm. revitalization or just plainly calling it ecological restoration. But I have come across it in New Zealand. They're using that word biocultural restoration. And in Central America. Mm-hmm. And I haven't come across papers out of Canada using that word. Have you? Ooh. I, I would. I don't think so. They're doing so. awesome projects up yeah, there. So Canada, I know they're Canada's doing, doing, doing it. Doing they're probably just right calling now. it. Maybe calling yeah. it something different. Um, um, but yeah, anyways, it, it's like that definitely. need to return the culture back to the landscape. Mm-hmm. So the landscape can be healthy again. And so the culture can be healthy again. Yeah. And I think that's like the touches on like paradigm shifts. Yeah. That's so revolutionary. Mm -hmm. Just that thinking right there. And we can't talk about science or research in indigenous communities without talking about property rights Mm -hmm. and without talking about knowledge and how that knowledge is treated and how it's protected. And I think one of the best ways to address that is to start with the cultural values first. And I haven't been asked who's going to own the knowledge because I've woven it into all my conversations. I kind of have certain points that I make sure to hit. One is that this is my idea. These are the skills I'm good at, but I really don't know what the community needs. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm here for is to find out. And, but more importantly, I really want to change the way research is done in indigenous communities and it has to start with culture and it has to start with acknowledging historical trauma Mm -hmm. and we have to acknowledge that that knowledge has been mistreated in the past and the only way to 
to be able to honor that and to begin doing things differently is to acknowledge that and figure out ways together how we can be more respectful of knowledge and sovereignty and things like that. Mm -hmm. So, so far it's been really good, but it's still very difficult because in the end, there's that institutional gap between where we have to publish, we have to write our thesis, we have to do all this stuff. But we also have this responsibility, a huge responsibility to our community. Mm -hmm. So having to balance that is really challenging for me. And like balancing that when you're in Syracuse, New York. Oh, man. <laughs> I know. And so we're lucky. We, we're surrounded by people that don't get it. Yeah. But if you, we try to share this outside of ESF, yeah, I get so many looks like, whoa, that's so cool. <laughs> or people are like, huh? Yeah, exactly. And uh, I just love the people in Syracuse, the ones that that, that really – I'm partial to it because I, I work with those Onondaga ladies and the, those yeah. ladies are extremely – They're pretty the awesome. Best, the, the best thing ever. They're so and, awesome. And um, I definitely, when we get back to Syracuse, I would love to – to have those ladies on for an episode. Mm, yeah. We'll talk that about would be really sovereignty. cool. And uh, I think it's just really cool because you can see not only activism movements happening, but in, in indigenous communities, but you see people becoming more aware of the importance of, of science and kind of understanding how science can maybe help in, in certain situations and, this is another. I'm gonna. I'm gonna ask you another hard question. Another probably three cool, hour. Fire comment. it at me. Yeah, another three hour comment question <laughs> that could be answered in a minute. Okay, you ready? Well, gonna crossfire. We'll see. Okay. Okay. Ready. So, when it comes to food sovereignty, mm -hmm. one of the the issues that I've I've come across is if you use science to help aid in food sovereignty, so you you don't do it the traditional way that used to be done. Mm -hmm. Like method, yeah. methodologies. Is that a positive thing or should it be done 100% the traditional way so it's not lost? You're right. That is a hard question. <laughs> well, I have two answers. It's a two-part answer. I feel that doing things the hard way is very important mm -hmm. and traditional methods are very hard. Yeah. Having to use a bone all to sew is ridiculously difficult. I've tried it and I, I suck at sewing as it is. Yeah. And then same with fire. Mm -hmm. The difference between using a lighter to make a fire and a bow drill is almost astronomical. It's just such a huge gap in skill level. So I would say that everyone needs to experience the hardness of what our people did on a day to day basis. Because it's humbling mm -hmm. it, and it's connecting. It helps us connect with the land in a much deeper way than just kind of going and starting a fire. Because you have to understand the plant community. You have to understand the water community and even the rock community. Because if you're not paying attention to all these different variables, your fire is going to go out or you're yeah. going to burn something oh, or yeah. yourself. So that's the first half. That I, I do believe that doing things the old way is important. The second half is I don't feel like it's practical or important to do all the time. Mm -hmm. But if those skills are lost, these primitive skills, when the complex technology fails, we're kind of screwed because there's no way to fix that. You can fix or make, you can make brand new bone alls just like that. But 
to manufacture a needle with an eye and thread and all these modern fabrications we have, that takes a lot of resources and a lot of expertise. And most people just don't have that. Whereas primitive skills like these original, they're in my opinion, they're like some of the closest things to our original instructions are some of these skills and these tech pieces of technology that have been around since time immemorial. <laughs> So I do feel like doing things the old way is very important, but I don't feel like we have to do it like that all the time mm-hmm. because because we are adaptable. It's built into our cultures. It's it's one of the things I value most about being Amskapi Pikani is how adaptable our culture is and how adaptable our people are. Mm-hmm. And resilience has a lot to do with that and that plays a lot into our science. So... I think there's no, I don't think there's anything wrong with like bringing a Walmart bag into lodge. <laughs> I mean, if you, if your other, your medicine bag's dirty, I mean, why not? So, I mean, it really comes down to how we use these tools, mm-hmm. the value system that's guiding the process and that's guiding the method more so than the actual tools themselves. But it's a feedback loop because the tools you use have a big effect on your worldview over time. So it's, um, you're right. It's, it's it, not an easy question. To it's answer. not. Yeah. And, and it's something that I've been kind of thinking about a lot on, I'm, I'm currently trying to, to grow some, some food, some, from some seeds that I got from, from the ladies in Onondaga. Mm-hmm. And I loved working with them because they really used traditional practices on, on when they planted moon cycles and, directional planting and and really kind of just making sure that the plants know how much you care for these plants. Mm-hmm. I think that's such an important thing that we don't think about. And also Robin, Robin talks about how important caring for plants are and just really understanding that there needs to be reciprocity in everything that you do. And I feel now there is these scientific revolutions that are really allowing you to have reciprocity in a master's conservation biology thesis. And I, I don't know. I'm just, I think that's what I'm thankful for right now. That's definitely. I'm really grateful for that too. Um, I can't imagine doing a master's research without being able to do it the way we are. Mm -hmm. I think it would probably suck. Yeah. I wouldn't like it. And that it's a part of the reason why I didn't go into graduate school right away is there's no program being offered anywhere I could find or anywhere I was interested in that was willing to do what I was wanting to do. And that reminds me of this book from Thomas Kuhn. It's called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And in this book, he talks about how they like these revolutions and paradigm shifts. They are a huge part of revolutions and mm-hmm. how really it starts with this kind of shift in worldview and that leads to paradigm shifts and then when that occurs then you could be using the exact same tool and looking be looking at the exact same data but you'll see it completely different. different yeah and i really want to read this there's this really cool experiment that he talks about in this book from the hanover institute and it's where the experimental subject puts on a fitted pair of inverted lenses. So it makes the whole world upside down. But after a while, the subjects, be they begin to learn to deal with this new world and their entire visual field flips. 
And this is a legit research project. They found that this happens hmm. to people after a while, an intervening period, their visions of their vision just being all confused. Yeah. Their vision flips and objects are after that point seen as if they weren't wearing the goggles at all. Hmm. And that just that's crazy. And he says here that literally, as well as metaphorically, the man accustomed to inverting lenses has undergone a revolutionary transformation of vision. And that is just such a really powerful, I mean, the power of understanding that and how that relates to what's going on with what you brought up, how there's this paradigm shift or a revolution going on in science mm -hmm. where Western scientists are beginning to understand that indigenous science is totally valid mm -hmm. in and of itself and that it's more capable of solving certain questions and problems than Western science ever was or potentially ever will be capable of doing. So that's kind of what I see going on right now is that that proverb or that metaphorical flipping of the goggles. It's mm -hmm. almost like we're putting uh, native beer goggles on or something. <laughs> and scientists are beginning to do that too. They're like, hey, I like these things. And so they're putting on the beer goggles. Or maybe not beer goggles, native goggles, and starting to see the world in a different way. Mm -hmm. And when enough of the scientific community does that, have you ever heard of that theory? Uh, what is it? It's like the hundredth monkey or something. No. I can't remember. But what it's about is that they did this. They. I can't remember where this study comes from, but there was a research experiment done, and I'll try to find that and link it in the show notes. But what they did was they introduced these chimpanzees to a stimulus and that stimulus signaled that they would get food. Oh, okay. And yeah. so they did this, but they had all these monkeys in separate or not monkeys, the, all these apes in separate enclosures. But they found that after the 100th monkey, geez, geez, I'm doing a really bad job at being biological or was that taxonomically correct? <laughs> the apes, the, they, uh, after the, hundredth one learned the stimulus signaled getting food all the entire population yeah. automatically learned it like a, yeah. there's this collective subconscious that when enough of the population learns it it just translates to the rest of the population even though they'd never even been exposed to that mm -hmm. stimulus they're in totally separate enclosures and everything and yeah. that that's i think that's very encouraging to me that tells me that it doesn't require that everybody be a scientist or that everybody believe the same thing. What it requires is that enough of us begin to accept a shift in the worldview to the point where we all begin seeing the world a little differently. Mm -hmm. And I feel that going on right now, for sure. Yeah, I definitely agree that it's a great shift and... I know that we kind of asked a lot of questions to each other this episode. And if anybody else wants to pitch in, definitely send us an email. Um, you could go to our website, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a way you could contact us and, and kind of give us your opinion. Let us know what you guys would answer. Yeah. I'm really I, curious. I, yeah. I'd like to know. I'd like to know what you guys are thinking about. I, I know I get, I get feedback from, from my mother <laughs> all the time. Yeah. And so I, I'd like to hear from other people too and, and kind of see – what they have to say. Me too. 
So, yeah, like Anna said, you can go out to our website. It's www.ndnscienceshow.wordpress.com. And you can, there's a section on there where you can contact us and just ask any questions that maybe you want us to explore on the show, or maybe you want to ask one of our guests a question or see if a guest can answer a question. So feel free to leave a comment or a review and drop a question in there and we'll be sure to include it in the show. Yeah. You can also find us on our social media accounts. So we have Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, all of them are located at NDN Science Show. So NDN Science Show. Where else are we at? Is that it? I think. Oh, oh, done, oh yeah. You yeah, can, you can find download us. us. Yeah, yeah. Download us. Download our podcast. Any platform. Any podcast platform. I'm pretty sure we're on all of them. I think so. Um, what? Stitcher? I know. there. I learned about a lot of new ones. Trying to <laughs> put this out there realizing, holy crap, there's like a dozen that are very popular. So if we aren't on yours, let us know and we will make sure to try to, try, try to yeah, get us we'll, on we'll there. We'll try to get on there. Yeah. I know that it's really important to just remember what, what you talked about earlier in the show, the reciprocity. And... Just thinking about that, I feel very, very grateful that I can even do this show mm-hmm. to begin with. I don't think I could have done it a couple of years ago because of financial situations and time limitations. And then also just I feel like I'm at a point in my life right now where I feel comfortable enough talking about these things and in, with sharing these things in a good way to where I'm totally fine with making mistakes, but I know that this message needs to be shared. So mm-hmm. I'm just grateful that we can share it like this and just to be able to because, uh, yeah, although it's very tough and time consuming, I feel like we have a lot of support and I'm very grateful for that. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree. It's It's been it's been fun. It's been a long, long few months and I'm really excited that we are here being able to do this. Mm-hmm. How should we end today? Should we end it now? I think we should probably end it. I think we're yeah. I think we're blabbing on. We're done for. <laughs> I think it's been an hour-ish and and it's it's hot. I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. So let's do it the bitter sailish way. Okay. Should we say it at the same time? I guess. <laughs> no, you go first. Namash reached him in. Namesh reached him in. Wait, should I end it? Yeah. Yeah, I'm hot. It's so hot in here. I'm all sweaty.